and welcome back to the Ultra United podcast. And today, today we've got a juicy one, right? You've seen the title. We're looking inside one of the biggest transfers in, I think, Premier League history in terms of its influence, in terms of what happened from it, in terms of the entire institution of a football club and a name and a player and a chairman and a legacy being formed kind of in one fell swoop. We're looking into all of the little things that happened before and after this, which a lot of you might not know about, a lot of you might not have researched it, but looking back and reflecting on what spawned from it is definitely one to stick with. So if you're an Arsenal fan or if you're a um, you know a top Premier League fan or just a generalist in the football area, then this one is for you. So straight off the bat, drop a like on the video if you're listening on YouTube. And uh, if you are on Spotify, Google, Apple, then follow the Ultra United podcast because we're looking to do this quite consistently over here. So we're going to be talking about Arsenal. Arsenal Football Club, ladies and gentlemen. Now, what are they up to now? I don't know. We're going to call them a very big English club. There's no doubt in that. Arsenal Football Club are a humongous footballing institution. There's simply no doubt in the fact that they are have been going for a very long time. They're integral to English football and they have a legacy. They've gone on to do something in Premier League football, which no one has ever done. Again, you've probably heard of them, the Invincibles. We'll talk about them later on as well. But now you'd say, I don't know, they've especially last season, they finished 10th, they might have fallen off a bit of their perch for the last few years, but with the signings they're looking to make and the direction they're looking to go in, let's all hope, I guess, from a you know purist point of view that we can see the greatness of Arsenal kind of shine once again. But in the early 90s, there wasn't really much of Arsenal shining. You know, we were kind of getting to that point in the late 90s and early 2000s where we saw the best of them. But the embryonics start of it kind of came at the beginning of the Premier League era. And yes, I know about Herbert Chapman in the 30s. I know about um, when they won the league in 89. I know about all that. But in terms of sustained regular success and documented success and something that's formed the bedrock of their current status, nothing really compares to what they did in the late 90s and early 2000s. And to kick all that off, you have to juxtapose it pretty much with what they were going through in the earlier 90s. I'd say from anywhere between 1990 to 94, Arsenal were considered one of the most boring teams that you could possibly watch. There was a chant for God's sake, boring, boring Arsenal, boring, boring Arsenal. I can't lie, the people who came up with that chant, a bit boring. <laughs> you could have thought of something a little bit more inventive than that, but they were. They were boring. They were kind of known for their 1-0 wins. They were known for being gritty and tough to break down and tough to even score for themselves. Like They wouldn't score the most spectacular things like on that you'd ever see on a highlights reel, but you know, they were still not a very fun institution to watch. And a lot of that kind of comes down to the coaching, the players and the management. And the manager at that time was George Graham, who was an unflappable, resilient, like just army war veteran of a coach that you would ever see. And it kind of came through his own style, the way that Arsenal ended up playing football. And it's, it worked for them a little bit. You know, they were still winning games. They were still quite competitive in the league and they were still a threat. And they had very good players at the time. You're looking at your Lee Dixons, your Tony Adams, your Ian Wrights, for God's sake. They still had a very, very strong team to work with. But it would all come crashing down, it would seem. That whatever success that they were looking at at the time, it would all come crashing down by 1994. And the reason it came crashing down is because George Graham himself, known for kind of being a stickler for like being proper and being like exact with rules and being strong and vengeful if anything were to go against his idea of what was systematic and correct he brought Arsenal into disrepute in the early 90s and 
it sucks to say that because he still is treasured as one of the better managers of the Premier League era, and, and rightly so, he should be. And what he ended up getting caught for is something that was unfortunately quite common in football at the time. And that was that back then, agents, let's say, weren't as rife in the footballing community as they are nowadays. I mean, all I have to do is scroll on LinkedIn and you'll see like 10 of them. I've worked with a few of them. I've been one of them. Like, I, I know what that's like. So back then, they weren't as really sought after. They weren't as integral to the game as they are now. And if you wanted to kind of, you know, deal with them and kind of get them on your good side, then... You'd have to give them a reason for them to have their clients pick you over any of the other competitors in the game. And the way you kind of go about doing that, I guess, is you would pay them unofficially, you know, under the table payments to say, here, if I give you this, would you mind, you know, selling that player to me or giving us right of first refusal on your clients, that kind of thing. And that happened quite a lot of the time. Ian Wright has said famously that it would be in like a brown paper bag type situation. Like um, it would be a brown paper bag so that cleaners in football clubs and all around wouldn't throw them away on accident. Everyone knew exactly what it was. So, So it was an open secret. Like everyone knew what it was, but it doesn't make it right. And it isn't right because what George Graham ended up being uh, found guilty of was that he was getting into cahoots with uh, some, you know, big money dealers and big money sort of uh, agents in the field at the time who had access to certain clients that he wanted to maintain a certain relationship with. And in this case, when we look at George Graham, he struck up uh, quite a fruitful partnership with an agent who shall remain nameless for now, who said to him, look, I know I have this amount, like, he, he's still, I don't think he's still going right now, I'm not sure what he's doing at the moment, but he had the likes of Morton Gamps Pedersen, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he was kind of a top Nordic specialist in, in the agency world at the time, and so he said, look, I've got a couple of Danish players who I'm struggling to find moves for, do you mind just taking them on for a little bit? And it was Jensen and some other guy, I can't remember the names of the players, but they, that's not the point. Essentially, he took these players on, they weren't good enough, and when you've got a team that you, I don't know, you had to poach the likes of Crystal Palace to get Ian Wright, you had to do something similar with, I think it was QPR at the time, to get the likes of David Seaman. Both of them were bought in for a pittance and became club legends. If you're spending millions of pounds on some has-beens or like some nobodies who come from Denmark that don't really do anything, you're going to get found out. And yes, I know John Jensen, who was one of the Danish players, won Euro 94. Sick. But Peter Schmeichel and Laudrups and those kind of players are one of the main reasons they won Euro 94. Just because he was there doesn't mean that he was an integral part of it and deserved a move to Arsenal off the back of it. No one's going to convince me of that otherwise. And just see how he performed. I don't think even he could convince you otherwise. It was just a poor lapse in judgment, I think, from Graham's part. And he wanted to benefit. It, it, was, it was aimed to benefit the club. It, you know, he wanted to get certain types of players and do this favour to get there. But it didn't work out. He got caught and... In his place came a equally stern face in Bruce Rioch, who was the Bolton manager at the time. And he was kind of installed to steady the ship, sort of from 1995, you know, indefinitely. But in the background, there was a lovely tanned, like, <laughs> sort of socialite by the name of David Dean. A really personable, a smart, suave, savvy businessman who was uh, the vice chairman of Arsenal Football Club. And he's probably the guy who doesn't get any credit for what he does because no one ever does when you're in the background but David Dean is the man behind everything good that you could think about of Arsenal from this period and if you don't believe me listen to this 
David Dean was the vice chairman from the late 80s up into the early 2000s. He was the man who manufactured them getting into the new stadium um, at the Emirates. And obviously it led to a couple of tough things for them now. But you can't deny that it was a savvy business move for him to move there. Um, he's also one of the guys responsible for forming the Invincible teams in uh, 2003-04. And he's also the man who brought in the guy who we're going to talk about next, who is Arsene Wenger. Arsene Wenger, at the time, no one really knew who he was. I'll put it out there. He was a manager who he, he managed Nancy and AS Monaco from, I think, 86 to 94. And, you know, to various degrees of success, he'd obviously managed um, Glenn Hoddle when he was out in... Um, in uh, in Monaco and he's you know managed good players and he he had a philosophy for how football was meant to be played at least in his world and by 1996 he was in Japan Arsene Wenger was a manager in Japan who uh between 94 and 96 was kind of toiling with his work at the time didn't really know what he was going to do and he was kind of a part-time manager there and part-time kind of spokesperson for UEFA on how he thought the game should be played and the integrity with which it should be operated by the players like he was kind of he's he's like the kind of manager that you would want to bring home to mum you know he was he he said everything right and he believed in a pure version of the game and I think after not only what Arsenal went through with George Graham when he was dismissed but also I think the boring boring stuff kind of got to David Dean and he was looking for someone after Graham had left to make sure that they could go to a new direction because yes he brought in Ryok who was an accomplished manager but he was immediately just installed to steady the ship and you can see this you know um, based on looking back but he was never going to be the long-term solution for David Dean who wanted to go in this direction. I think if David Dean had said, I want someone like George Graham and I want that kind of George Graham-ness to continue, he'd stick with Rioch, but he didn't. And there were various reasons for why he didn't stick with him, but ultimately Dean himself wanted another manager. Why would Dean go and court other managers at the time when Rioch is doing kind of relatively well in the league, like no, not as good as Graham, but relatively well considering what they went through? if he was happy with him he wasn't it's, it's just a fact he, he wasn't happy with him and at the time i think the uh, the news of the world had published various articles so we all know how um, reliable they are but apparently johan cruyff who'd come off uh, being the barcelona manager was interested in becoming arsenal manager like I'd, i don't know how that would look to be honest because we all know cruyff is probably one of the for me he is the most influential footballing figure of all time and uh, it would have been interesting to see how he would have come to Arsenal at the time and what he would have done. But well, for, for whatever reason, that didn't work out. And Arsene Wenger was saying all the right things to Dean to say, you know, this could be um, the guy to take Arsenal forward. And might not be a lot of fanfare around it, but the guy the guy's talking a good game. So, you know, the season keeps going on in 95-96. Ryuk is kind of steadying the ship again with Arsenal, but they're not going anywhere, right? They are just kind of staying afloat, doing what Arsenal do and getting into like the top half or maybe, you know, the top six and then skirting back up and down. That's what Ryok was kind of a master at doing at Arsenal in, in uh, you know, with all due respect to him. So it was time for Arsenal to go up another, another gear. So after all these preliminary conversations with Arsene about his style of football and about how he wants a team to perform, it slowly dawned on David Dean that there weren't many players that could take on the fluidity and the form of motions that Wenger wanted his players to be in. Like, Ryok was your typical 4-4-2 manager, as was George Graham, and there were very few players in that team that could 
breach their positions. I mean, you could say, yeah, okay, Ian Wright, he was quick. Stick him on the wing, I guess. Uh, Lee Dixon could whip a ball in, get him on the right wing, on the right wing sometimes. Maybe, like, it, but it didn't work. It, it was never going to work. And he always stressed this idea of having a creative playmaker to, you know, bring the game together and kind of set it forward in motion. And they didn't really have that. So he went on the transfer market. David Dean himself went on the transfer market. Bearing in mind, Wenger is still in Japan with Nagoya Grand Passate. They're having these unofficial conversations. Uh, David Dean is now looking on the transfer market to see the type of player that Wenger would want in Arsenal to bring to Arsenal. But do you really think he's doing that with the intention of having someone like Bruce Rioch manage him? No. No, he's not. And he scouts and he scouts and he sees all these different players and for whatever reason, this just fell into place where he goes to Holland, he goes to Spain, like all the places where Wenger says, you know, you need to look. And then he ends up going to Italy where he spots a little player. Well, I say little, he's like six foot plus, uh, got a little perm thing going on. And he's, you know, kind of a, like a thin gangly looking guy playing in the uh, false nine role in a Serie A team and thinking, hang on, he's he's got a bit about him, but he's not really been given license to do what he wants to do. And that player was Dennis Bergkamp, who at the time he was playing for Inter Milan. And prior to that, ironically, Johan Cruyff had given him his first professional debut at Ajax. He smashed everything that there was to smash with Ajax and then decided, I need to challenge myself with the likes of Inter Milan, which he ended up doing. And it didn't really work out for him. And he'll admit that he's not the only player that goes to an Italian league and it doesn't work out for them because the Italians, I'd say Bruce Rioch would be a great Italian manager. Like that would have worked out really, really well. But after a year, in Inter, it was clear Dennis Bergkamp wasn't an Inter Milan player, or he wasn't a Serie A player, it just wasn't going to work, it was too negative, it was too, like, ill-constructive towards a player of his stature and of his style, he needed a bit of freedom, and he needed a bit of fun, that's what he, he needed, a bit of a license to do what he was good enough to do, and what he should have been brought in to do, so David Dean settles on him, he's like, that's my man, Seven and a half million quid at the time, a record-breaking transfer for Arsenal. He brings him in. He joins Bruce Rioch's team and all of a sudden he's not being used in the way that he wants to be used. Like I said, Rioch would have been perfect for Inter Milan or perfect for, I don't know, probably not Inter Milan, but a Serie A team. And that's where things came to a head. All right, there's, there's loads of things saying that there's a disgruntlement between Rioch and Dean over general transfer policy and all this kind of stuff. But seven and a half million on Dennis Bergkamp, a player Rioch clearly didn't know what to do with was probably the the driving factor behind it. So the way I look at things is that you've got this little situation where, you know, you've got the Graham dismissal, Riot comes in, steady the ship, does what he has to do. David Dean notices what's happening here, thinks it could be a fresh slate for Arsenal to reinvent themselves. He's talking to the right people. He settles upon Arsene Wenger, who's then in Japan. The time's not working out. Arsene's in his own contract. He's got Ryok in on his own contract. But he's thinking, how can I marry the two together? Well, Arsene says I should do this. He goes and buys someone like Dennis Bergkamp. Brings him to Arsenal. Ryok, who's already there, doesn't want Dennis Bergkamp. And he doesn't work for him. So if you go on Transfer Marks or on Wikipedia or whatever, it'll technically look like Bruce Ryok was the manager who signed Dennis Bergkamp. But back then... It was very common for managers to be the sole driving force behind a player joining or leaving a club. But Ryuk didn't have anything to do with that. I'm, comp I'm certain of that. Ryuk didn't have anything to do with that. 
if he did, he was told. And he was like, yeah, go on then, you're the boss. Uh, that's that's all I can picture that kind of doing. And then it doesn't work out for Ryok. He's then dismissed by the beginning of 96. And Arsene Wenger, after a lengthy contract deal with Nagoya Grand Passeur, I think that's pay him out of his contract or wait a certain amount of time. He was installed as Arsenal manager. So what that looks like to me is that Dino, I can't call him that, no, Mr. Dean, David Dean, he spotted Arsene Wenger and thought, you are the guy who's going to take this club to where it's supposed to be. And then in order to kind of prove, not prove his loyalty, but to put his money where his mouth is, he buys Arsene a little gift. I will always look at Dennis Bergkamp moving to Arsenal as a gift for Arsene Wenger to do with what he pleased. And straight off the bat, Arsene takes Bergkamp under his wing and Bergkamp becomes one of the best Arsenal players in history. In fact, one of the best Premier League players in history. Um, I can't think of many players who are as good a creator or a catalyst as Dennis Bergkamp. He, for me, is on par with Eric Cantona at Manchester United. Okay, they didn't win as much as Manchester United, but they won a damn lot. And I think if Man United weren't there, they probably would have won everything. <laughs> like, let's be real. So, and you could say that about Man United, but but whatever. I think Dennis Bergkamp was brought in as a little treat for Arsene to then say, you know what, here's your license, you go and do what you need to do. And then because it pays to reason, because then Arsene, when he comes in, he brings in uh, Patrick Vieira and, and Remy Gard, like two unconventional sort of uh, midfielders that would automatically com- like complement Bergkamp. And they just went on from there. You know, they bought... I don't need to say who they bought. We all know Robert Pires, Frederick Lundberg, uh, Thierry Henry in the next few years. And then they became who they became. But without Dean taking the initiative to see what his team needed, to look beyond what they were doing at that time and think, I need something extra or I need something more. And this guy in Rioch is not going to give me that. But this unproven, like specky-eyed, like wonderfully cultured man from France who's now in Japan will... I think all credit to Mr. David Dean. He is a visionary beyond what a lot of Arsenal fans would probably recognise at this stage. And in this world of forward thinking transfers and, you know, kind of sticking to what fans want and doing the, the normal and doing the inevitable, to go out of what you were doing, to go to look beyond the crisis you're in and to completely change things up, that takes a lot of balls to do that. But it also takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of business and football in acumen. And David Dean was at the heart of all of that. So fair play to him. And, you know, let me know what you think about Mr. David Dean in the comments. Uh, Arsenal fans, I'm interested to know because obviously he's, I think he left sort of like pre-2010 and kind of during the Emirates move. So it's, you know, it's funny how people look back at Arsene Wenger now and think, you know, he was this incredible you know, as, as he was a, a managerial philosopher who deserves to be spoken in the same hush breath as the great managers of all time. But I'm interested to hear what people think of David Dean because, you know, people like him don't get the credit that they deserve. And much like another David, David Gill at Manchester United, he doesn't get the credit that he deserves. Or Ch- uh, Cheeky Bergerstein, who is at the uh, the Manchester Manchester City director of football, who's also responsible for Tiki Taka. Like, these, these types of people don't get the credit that they deserve so you know let me know what you think about him down below and then also you know follow us if you enjoy this kind of thing i could talk about this forever in terms of a podcast or on our uh, website www.ultrautd.com and uh, we upload daily on that thing like it's, it's it's a big old uh kind of passion project over there and essentially you know we talk about the things that 
a lot of footballing media outlets don't. You know, we want to bring together fans of different cultures, different communities, and celebrate all the things that make us fanatical supporters, or in this case, ultras. So get them down below. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and even on TikTok at UltraUTD. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Ultra United podcast.